Hello everyone, welcome back to Meet the Roommates. This will be our Halloween special featuring a very special guest, uh, Marianne Madalena. You may all know her from her many works she's produced, such as The Scream franchise, uh, The Hills Have Eyes, and many more. Uh, hi Marianne, thank you for joining us today, actually. Hi guys, it's so nice to be here. Alright, so I, I wanted to do this podcast mainly because you helped like launch horror back in the 90s and like into the 2000s um and the first thing i wanted to ask you actually was like uh was horror always the route you wanted to go no actually i was just mainly interested in film i've always loved thrillers when i was a kid i loved hitchcock you know i loved those kind of movies i wasn't necessarily a horror fan and then uh, when I started working for Wes, obviously that was his metier. And yeah. uh, I kind of always felt his movies were sort of kind of different than, say, you know, certain kind of horror movies. And I loved his storytelling. So um, I just loved working on his movies with him. Oh, yeah. It was, Wes really did have an interesting style. I can see that from all his films, from like his original works. Uh, starting, you know, with uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and what he did with that and how it eventually like, evolved into some different. And then um, going into the 90s and how he continued, like, that unique style he had that no one else could really do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was really an auteur. He um, came up with, you know, incredible ideas. I mean, Last House on the Left was actually based on a movie that Ingmar Bergman did called Virgin Spring, which was actually based on something like a 16th century fable. Did you know that? Oh, I did not know that at all. That's very interesting. So you should um, watch the Virgin Spring and you can see where, how Wes was inspired. I will. I was actually like going back and watching, you know, like his filmography and then all the things you worked on, um, you know, just everything was, it just kept like, just the more I got into, like the more like understand, like, the way he went about like doing his storytelling compared to other directors. Um, and I, yeah, it's like, uh, I would look into that. It's very interesting. I did not know that. And then with um, nightmare on Elm street, I feel like he read an article about people in Cambodia dying in their sleep. And I can't remember exactly what the story was, but that inspired nightmare on Elm street. And of oh, course, did. he tried to sell the pitch or the script even to studios. They didn't feel it was going to be scary. And many of the big studios passed on it. And he had letters from Universal saying, we just don't think this is going to be scary. You know, dreams aren't scary. And he had them framed in his office. Oh, my God. These, uh, oh my God. That- these rejection letters. And then Bill uh, Bob Shea from New Line agreed to finance it. And he made the right call on that one then. I'll say. That was a perfect. Uh, for this next question, I'll let my co-host ask the next one. Okay. So, Bella, uh, let's say you go with question number two. Okay, question number two. Um, tell me what it was like working with Wes Craven. I'd love to hear some of the things you learned from such an amazing director. Well, you know, I was really spoiled because I started sort of young with him and he 
didn't really know any different from anyone else. So, you know, I started his assistant and he was so generous to basically take me along in every meeting, which, you know, a lot of times assistants weren't allowed in the room. So yeah. he would take me to the composer sessions. He would take me to casting sessions. And I just did. I worked seven days a week. If there was a scoring session on a Sunday night, I... You'd be at the scoring session. Work. Yeah, I worked, work, work. So he was just, you know, he when he met me, he said, what do you want? I said, I want to be a producer. And two years later, I became a producer. Oh, my God. So he, he was the one who, like, opened those gates. A hundred percent. So, like, actually, that's perfect. Like, that that's a perfect segue into the next thing. Like, so... Like, what made you want to be a producer? Like, what inspired you to go into the film industry? Like, I know you said Hitchcock was one of the main things, you know, that, like, drove you to it. Uh, what well, drove you down that path? Well, really, it was growing up in Michigan. Uh, my family, we were movie freaks. We went to the drive-in, you know, there were five kids in a station wagon. We would go to, like, a triple header, you know, pile all the kids in the car and see three movies in a row. And... um in our pajamas. So I kind of grew up with that. And my sister was a big influence on me because she was really, she loved film. And she would, in those days, there was, you know, no videos. She would take to the public library to see movies that they would show, you know, like the Grand Hotel with Greta Garbo. And she inspired me really. And then I loved movies and we played movie guessing game. You, when we drove home from our relatives, we'd give the initials of a movie and everybody could ask yes or no questions. And and that's kind of what we did. So when I was 17, I, I was living in Michigan. And I thought, oh, man, I don't want to live here. I don't want to go to college here. It's just so boring. So I couldn't know. In those days, no one just moved to LA. It wasn't like that. So I, I had two passions. One was uh, Europe, you know, because uh-huh. I'm Italian. And I just was fascinated with Europe. I wanted to go. And so what I did is I I couldn't study Italian in school because they didn't offer it. So I studied French. So then I found when I was 18, instead of going away to college, I realized I could be an au pair, which is a nanny. Uh And I could go to France. So the company, the agency I called, I wrote them in those days, you wrote people. And they said, well, where do you want to go in France? And I said, huh? And I looked at the map and I'm like, I want to go to Cannes because I want to be a film producer. And I got it. That's. I really thought, you know, I'd read this book, Tess of the Durbervilles, and I I was obsessed with, like, the production value and casting it, and I did a whole paper on how I would cast it, what it would look like. <clears throat> so I just love movies, and I felt like it was the easiest thing to do. I don't know why I felt that, but I felt it was easier than to going to a four-year college. So I moved to Cannes, because I'd heard of the Cannes Film Festival. That was the only reason I moved there. And I got a job as an au pair, and then I ended up ended up working as a stewardess on a yacht and um, the guy who owned the yacht had a company in LA and eventually he gave me a job in LA as an assistant. And three years later, it took about three years, you know, I was traveling all over Europe and on these yachts, I even cooked on a yacht and um, eventually I moved right the week before I turned 21 to Los Angeles with a job. Oh my God. That's, that's such an amazing story that back then things were so different. You jumped from like, just so from the very beginning, like you, you knew where you you wanted to go. You, you're just working every job you took from where you started 18 was your way to be a producer. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I told everyone I want to be a producer. I want to be a producer. That's all I said. And people like them, when I worked on that yacht and I said to the owner of the yacht, who is this 
he was a he was the best selling writer of his time. He did schlocky novels. Um, but he was very wealthy, and I told him I wanted to be a producer, and he said, "Well, I'll give you a job in L.A." And when I got to L.A., then I worked for him for a while. Then I worked for an agency, and they handled Hitchcock. They handled Michael Jackson. Um, I met all the. And I just told everybody I met, that's what I wanted to do. So I really just worked my way up until I met Wes, who gave me a job as his assistant. And then he just, he, you know, he was kind of, you know, he was very indie. So he wasn't at all in the Hollywood scene. He didn't have an assistant. Yeah. He was very scatterbrained. So he really needed someone. And he was shy. So he really needed a, a partner to be in the room with him, you know? So it was kind of the perfect timing. Like he helped me and I helped him. Oh my God. That's, that's so interesting. You were, I, I like, you know, I've, you know, I recently started meeting uh, more people who work in the industry and like a lot of times like, or at least nowadays would have looked into like, you don't really hear stories like this anymore. No, you don't. So like just hearing you tell me like how you got to where you uh, eventually were to where you started is so interesting. You like go like the whole, the whole way then she worked back then was very, very different from how it is today. Oh yeah. I mean, it was, you, you never heard about box office or, you know, there was no connection to the film business. Like it was, it was just, you would, I would never have thought of going from um, Michigan to LA. It just never would have occurred to me. Uh, yeah, that's that's very fascinating. Like, you know, I mean, people Michigan go to film school then, you know. Yeah, like well, nowadays you know, like there's all these film schools all over, but like back then, I'm sure there wasn't that many, correct? No, I don't think I could even. No, there wasn't. I mean, there was no film school, so I. But I also wanted to get out of Michigan, and I just again was fascinated by Europe. That's my passion is film and travel. So, um, you know, that's what I ended up doing is moving to Cannes of all places. And then it's mostly working on a yacht where we sailed all over the Mediterranean. And oh my gosh, Marianne, you have lived a life. <laughs> it was pretty fun. And then I traveled, like took the train all over Europe. And then of course with Wes, we made movies all over the world. We shot Morocco. We shot in uh, Cape Town, South Africa, you know, Atlanta, New York City, Haiti, Dominican Republic. So I kind of kept it, kept both passions going. So, like, no matter what, like, I, I just love the fact that even, like, throughout, like, that you accomplished, like, most of the things you want to do. Like, you had your goals set for, straight from the start, and everything you did were attached to the goals, and you did it. That's, I was that's amazing. Producer, and I was a producer at 30. Oh, my God. What? You. Shocker. And you, yeah. Shocker oh. with New, uh, for Universal. All right, Bella, do you want to go ahead and ask the next question? Because I think like it's perfect like from where we're getting to. Yeah, okay. Um, the next question is, when you first started working as a producer, did you know that you'll, you'd end up being such an amazing impact on the horror pop culture? No, not at all. I mean, we thought Scream was going to be a bomb. Um, we had no idea that Scream would take off the way it did. So it was, no. it was a thrill when... All of a sudden, Scream, the first weekend of Scream, it only made $6 million, but Bob Weinstein called us up and congratulated us, and we're like, why? And I guess because it was the exit polls were huge. And then, of course, it made over $100 million, and that's kind of when 
you know, we didn't realize until a week after the release. You know, it's very interesting because, you know, um, when I was doing my research, like I told you a while ago, um, you know, looking at this, like, you know, the screen documentary you guys end up doing when around, I think you guys were finishing up Scream 3, I believe. And, you know, talking about Scream, like you guys faced every difficult challenge to get Scream out there. Yes. Um, and I, I found out so amazing from, you know, uh, Drew Barrymore pulling out to um, the studio not wanting to compromise. And then the M17 rating you guys almost got. Like every possible thing that could go wrong was hitting you guys hard. And it's like, well, how was that for you as the producer? Uh, you know, as a producer, you're used to problems. So you can't have a heart attack every time there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first issue was Drew, you know, dropping out. And, but she was very, I got to say, very savvy to figure out that she wanted to play the opening Casey, you know, the opening role. I mean, that was so savvy of her because no one had done that. So maybe as she called up Bob and said, oh, you know, I'm not, I think she called up and said, I'm not sure this is for me, but to compromise, I'll play the opening, you know, girl. So yeah. that was the first one. And then Bob didn't want to pay the extra million to shoot in Santa Rosa. He wanted us to shoot in LA. So Wes walked out of the movie. He walked out of his office and said, I quit. Oh my God. So then we got the million and then um, Bob hated the dailies. The first week we shot the Drew Barrymore sequence and Bob yeah. was so negative and he called up West and he said, Oh, I just hate these dailies. His actual line was they're workmanlike at best. And West was so dejected and he hated the mask too. So he hated the mask. He hated it. Oh my God. He hated the mask and I felt so bad because I found it and I was so yeah. myself. And then I thought, Oh man, I shoot, you know, I screwed up. But then what film executives want from you is cut footage as early as possible. But contractually a director has eight to 12 weeks to show the studio anything. So yeah. what we did is we had this brilliant editor named Patrick Lucier, and he cut the sequence together with music and sound effects and mm-hmm. sent it to Bob. You know, normally no studio head would ever get anything cut. And Bob said, like, right. we, th- we threatened to quit. We said, if you don't like our movie, shut us down. And then Bob said, well, what do I know about dailies? Carry on. Oh my God. So that Ooh. was an obstacle. Then the obstacle of course, was we lost our location because Santa Rosa decided they didn't want a horror movie shot in their high school. Oh, yeah, the school, correct? Yep. So they had a town hall meeting with a 1,000 people. Um, NBC, Bryant Gumbel flew in or something to do the interviews. I mean, it was insane. So we lo- lost that location. And we ended up going to Sonoma, to an old high school that wasn't being used. Oh, you know, it's really funny that it, like goes into like how how the character Wes was because then he he shouted um, Santa Rosa out in the credits, correct? Like, no thanks to Santa Rosa. Yeah, didn't he? Oh my god! No oh. Thanks whatsoever to Santa Rosa. I think that's one of the most brilliant lines I've seen anybody open in credits. That was so funny. <laughs> oh my god! And then. 
finally, there is a uh, trouble with the uh, rating, correct? You know what? We always have that. So yes, as you know, what I remember, we always would put footage in that we knew we'd have to take out. Mm-hmm. So you know, you extra bloody up a scene because you know you're going to get, you know, dinged. So um, and for a director, every frame is such a sacrifice. You know, they don't want to because you don't want to. You don't want to sacrifice too much of the story, correct? Not the story, the sh- you know the shots. Like if he's chosen a scene the way it is with the blood and gore, directors don't want to cut it, right? But so what you do yeah. is you load in longer shots of say Drew hanging from the tree, right? Yeah, that you know you'll be able to then cut it. See what I'm saying? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think in the end, as I recall, we actually said, "Oh, this is a com. It's a, it's a comedy." And I think based on that, we got away with a lot because we said, oh, you don't understand. This is a, you know, a comedy. It's funny. You know, we're just making fun of horror. And I think yeah, we, it was like a, was a, a spoof. So we got away with a lot that way. Yeah, it was like a parody. We were pl- a parody. Yeah, we were plagued with um, always getting X ratings, NC-17. That We were plagued with that our whole career. Oh, my God. Directors go so- way too far, of course. Yeah, you know they they just want to like keep poking keep poking at it until like they you they finally get the yes. Well, I mean they just want everything they want and they want it to be as bloody as they want it to be and they get so West got so upset with the MPAA. Oh my god, it was just his worst moments. But in the end, I think there's plenty of blood and gore in it. Yeah, there was, and I think it it still landed so perfectly though. Like every scene, like when I when me and uh, my fiance went back to rewatch. Uh, the movies themselves you know every scene and just fits so perfectly like the going back to like original slasher films and looking at scream scream just stands out so different and probably has to do wes's style and how he directed everything i know it was one of those movies i say it was kismet we got the right script the right director and the right actors you know which doesn't always happen yeah, no, a lot of times that, you know, I hear like it doesn't always go the way you want it. And this time around, it did. Yeah. Like everything fit so perfectly. Casting was impeccable. Timing is key. You know, getting away from horror for a bit, I also want to ask you, like, how is it working on music of the heart? Because that was like such a uh, derailed version from, you know, horror. How was it for you as a producer working on like a musical? Well, it was wonderful because, um, you know, Wes really did not see himself as a horror guy. He hated being called horror meister. Um, he really saw, he was, you know, a, a professor. So he yeah. did not like his horror. He, he kind of hated himself for it. You know, his mother didn't approve. His mother never saw many of his movies. And he really disliked that part of himself. And he really did feel like he was in, the horror ghetto, you know? So in the end, we did a trade. If Wes would do Scream 2, then he could pick from Harvey's sl- slates and do a drama. So he picked... Okay. Art. That's how it happened. Oh, that's so interesting. But, you know, Wes um, loved the corny stuff. You know, he he could do horror, but he didn't ever watch horror movies. Oh, he you didn't? Know? That's that's so strange. You're yeah. so good at making them. I would never guess he didn't watch horror he films. He hated Reservoir Dogs. I mean, he he didn't watch horror. I mean, he just he could do it, but 
he was a very intelligent man, you know, well-educated, loved classical music, played classical guitar, read constantly. I mean, he was, you know, the first person in his family to go to college. You know, he went to Johns Hopkins and got his master's and he just was a different guy. But, you know, he fell into horror and it kind of stayed with him. <laughs> and I, oh, I can only imagine how that must have been for him. Yeah, so he, he kind of was never thrilled with himself. Because don't forget, even in the in those times, horror was not really respected. Yeah. And, um, you know, you say you work on a, this movie and people say, oh, I, I don't watch horror movies. Oh, I hate that. Oh, I've never seen it. You know, they're rude, right? <laughs> oh, I hate it. Yeah. So that's what you get all the time when you go to a dinner party. Oh, yeah, I do. Oh, I hate those kind of movies. You know, Um you know, or they say, oh, Wes, you look so normal. I thought you were going to look like a gargoyle, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, so it definitely, nowadays it's different. You know, horror is accepted. But then, really, we it, it, it wasn't. No, because, I mean, like, uh, like, like I, when I first said, like, back in the 90s, oh, people were already getting done with horror movies. It was about to die out till you know, you guys did Scream. Yeah. And it brought everything back into the daylight. And that was really Bob Weinstein knew that Wes was magic, you know, and Bob really went after Wes. So you got to give it to Bob for that. Oh, yeah. You know, Bob. yeah, I knew it. Like, uh, I saw he wanted Wes because, you know, Wes did seem to have like the right directing way. And I don't think anybody but him could have, you know, brought this movie to life the way it was. Yeah, I mean, Wes was an auteur. And like you said in your other questions, you noted that there aren't that many horror auteurs. Certainly, um, what are the ones you mentioned? Uh, let's see. Uh, there's some ones. Jordan Peele. Mm. That was yeah. a, that's a brilliant movie, right? I think that's a brilliant movie. I think A Quiet Place is a brilliant, brilliant movie. Not really an auteur movie because it was a different writer's. Um, but Wes just was a very good, he just was a very good storyteller. And again, you want to, not many horror directors write and direct, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, he's kind of, maybe Jordan Peele. Um, there aren't that many out there. Yeah, uh, so, you know, that actually leads us into the next one. Like, uh, Bella, would you take this one? Yeah. Um, so the next question is, what is your take on current horror films? Many have said that the past 10 years that there has been a decline in horror storytelling. Yeah, well, like I said, my favorite, probably one of my favorite movies ever is A Quiet Place. So I, you know, I don't know if that's horror or thriller or a combo. Um, I think it's like a combo of like thriller and horror. Yeah, I love yeah. that. And I'm so mad about COVID delaying the second one. Oh, yeah. Because, um, I mean, the... In, Along with that, I think uh, other notable ones I think have stood out to me have been Get Out. I love Get Out. And The Cabin in the Woods. That's good. I like don't and breathe. lastly, Don't I... Breathe. Yeah. That was good. And then my personal favorite of the past few years has been the the remake of It. Yeah, I'm, I'm not. That doesn't speak to me. I wasn't scared. I felt like I saw the clown right away i wasn't scared enough in that one my my biggest gripe with uh the way they went with it because in the original 1994 miniseries they had since like they didn't have the budget for um special effects they had to make 
Pennywise himself scary, like just being like disturbing yeah. mm-hmm. and playing on these kids' horrors. And I feel like they kind of lost that because now they had like the big movie budget. So they want to go with like special effects rather than, you know, using Pennywise himself to like just terrify him, like in, or just telling a different story altogether. Yeah, it didn't, that one didn't speak to me. Um, uh, yeah, I think, I think um, Jordan Peele certainly is a good, I think Alex Aja is very talented. Ah, uh, Alex Aja. Yeah, he's great. You know, who, of course, did um, Hills Have Eyes for Us, the remake. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's uh, I, how can I forget? Like, the Hills Have Eyes were probably one of the first movies that terrified me when I was a younger kid. I remember watching the the first one and just see it, the thing that scared me the most about it. What I understood was a kid was the fact that these people were things that we humans create ourselves with like, you know, the nuclear testing. I brilliant idea. Wes, that was an inspired choice of Wes. The, the story, you know, another great story Wes had was um, the new nightmare. That was such a brilliant idea. Oh yeah. New nightmare. I love that. I, I feel like that was like such a refreshing take on Freddy from all the remakes after the original. Well, it's funny because he was not really speaking with Bob Shea. They were had an argument and Bob came to us to do Nightmare 7, New Nightmare. And Wes just took the job. But then, of course, he had to come up with the idea. And yeah. he was just couldn't come up with an idea. And he came to me and he said, I have this idea. And he pitched it to me. And I just said, oh, my God, Wes, that's a trillion dollar idea. That's the idea. And so he went to the desert and wrote for a month and came back with that script. Oh my cool. god! So that was pretty cool. I that I love that movie. I love it. And of course, Heather played herself. You know, which was daunting for her because she'd, you know, she really put herself out there as herself, and she'd had a stalker uh, in the past. Yeah, well, she, she did? did. And so it was really brave of her to put herself out there like that. Um. So you know, it was just such an original idea. I think it's it's. I love that movie. I can watch that over and over. And of course. While we were shooting, we had a major earthquake in Northridge. Oh, yeah, the 1994. So we had to shut down shooting, and uh, some of our crew members, you know, lost their homes in Studio City. Their condos fell down on them, you know, but they all lived. But it was tough. It was tough. And then the fires, we had had fires. So there's footage in the movie of driving around Malibu, seeing Malibu, you know, completely charred out. So it was pretty intense. It was a pretty intense film. It does sound like an intense film, but, you know, um, back when A New Nightmare came out and like, because uh, I watched, I watched the the original and then I watched some of the other ones and I can tell like over time, like the, the kind of went down, but then when A New Nightmare came back, you know, it felt very fresh, Fre- felt like Freddy again. Yeah. Well, you know, I saw, of course, Nightmare 1 and then I think Wes co-wrote Nightmare 3. Then I didn't yeah. see any other ones until um, we did Nightmare 7. Yeah, the other ones weren't that great. And we didn't work on them, so, you know. Yeah, exactly. So that's so that's why, you know, I figured uh, they were, you know, it was a declining thing because I'm sure the studio kept on wanting to work on them, but Wes was like tired. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I think just Wes and Bob Shea didn't really see eye to eye. It was a chance. And then when, 
So yeah, when he came back for New Nightmare, you know, it was like, it was it again. Yeah, it was I, it's pretty brilliant. Pretty brilliant. Um, so from there, uh, I'm sure you read a lot of scripts, like you know, in your your professional career. Uh, what are some of the scripts that stood out to you that you knew were, you know, I love Red Eye. When we got Red Eye. Red the Eye movie we did. Um, yeah, I got that script, and Wes wouldn't read it. And he wouldn't. I was like, oh my god, we got this great script. He was pissed off. We were doing that. What were we doing? Um, I think we were in the middle of the post production of Cursed, which is the worst movie ever made. And I knew we were going to be you know, we'd never work again if we didn't get a movie before that movie came out. Right. So yeah. I found this script red eye and, um, it was at DreamWorks and, and I said, Wes, you know, we found this great script and you got to read it. And he's like, I'm too busy. I can't read anything right now. I'm, you know, going through a lot. And so I called his agent. I said, Oh my God, please ask Wes to read the script red eye. He said to his say, I can't read it. I wrote him a long letter. This is why I can't read it. You know, my kids are going through things and I'm, I don't know if he's going, I can't remember what Wes was, maybe a breakup and he, he wouldn't yeah. read it. So <laughs> the agent, I called the agent. He goes, I see. He said, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll call Wes. So he did. And he said, Hey Wes, so you're Steven Spielberg's first choice. So how about you read it? And I read it tonight. If we don't like it, we just pass tomorrow. So, um, you know, Mike went home and read it and Wes read it and of course came back and he liked it. And we had a meeting the next day and I think the movie was done in 11 months. So but he, oh my God. And I knew that it was not horror. It was a thriller and it was the best thing for his career, but he wouldn't read it. And then of course, you know, he always forgot that fact that he wouldn't read it, you know? When I said, I found that. Um, so anyway, it all worked out. But you just have to, as a producer, you have to find so many ways to work, you know, your director, say, and it's to yeah. light your hair on fire. And But the agent was brilliant. The guy who said, well, you know, I'll read it, you read it. You're still, I'll, I'll call Steven tomorrow and tell him you're passing, but why don't we just read it tonight? Oh, my God. So you... You really, you really were there, like you know, trying to like help Wes at every step. Along oh my the god, way. yeah, Jeffrey Wes was painfully shy, hated making conversation, was so uncomfortable in the room. People would say, "I don't know how you can work with him; he's so painfully quiet and shy." And of course, it didn't bother me at all. But <laughs> yeah, he needed you know, some t- he needed TLC, he needed protection. You know, he was very artistic and kind of tough, but yet fragile. You know. Yeah. So. So you, like you really were like the yeah. one. It was like the perfect match. You're, like the perfect yeah, match. I was. We were the perfect match for each other. We really needed each other, and we complemented each other. I can tell from like the way you know you've talked to like you really knew Wes like oh, so yeah, well. Like really you know well. what? Oh, I'm like, uh, hope he's resting easy. It's like it's so. I was so sad when I heard about his passing back in 2015. No, it's incredible. Only 76 years old, but if you met him, you would have thought he was 10 years younger. I really wish I could have met him. He, you know, he had such a great influence on like, especially me growing up with the Scream franchise. You know that that's one of the few um, horror films that I. I could watch at a time that didn't seem so scary to me because my cousins were always trying to terrify me with 
um, Chucky and Freddy Krueger and all that. And then when I saw Scream, horror became a little bit easier for me. Ah. Yeah, I know. Did yeah, change. So. Like at the time, I know all these young girls would watch it. Would they go to the theater every weekend in groups? You know, thirteen-year-old girls would go a weekend after weekend. So yeah, had something that really appealed to people. I, really, I think even still today, you know, like I'm sure you. I don't know if you know, like, uh, well, I'm sure you know the fact that they're now doing Scream yes. Five. Did they come to you for any of that? Oh, yeah. Um. Um. You know. They did, but none of us, you know, there was a bankruptcy. So, um, you know, we're, I guess we, you would call us as silent partners. We still have participation, but not in person. Okay. It's all good. No complaints. And uh, so, I don't know, like, do you still want to do more producing? Oh, yes. Work? I'm producing a um, pilot right now at effects called how to be a man in the 21st century. Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't know. It's really good. It's based on a book called um, who stole my spear. Who stole my spear about men and how they're kind of losing their way and toxic masculinity and how to, you know, men cope in the world today where obviously there's a lot of bad press for men, you know? Well, I mean, that's actually really funny. That's one of the, you know, other episodes I want to do and, you know, talk about, you know, toxic masculinity because I still feel like that's a problem even in this generation. More so than ever. And we can see that by, um, you know, the white supremacists. Yeah. It's like, I just don't fully understand it. I mean, I guess maybe because for me, you know, I grew up, I was raised mainly by my mom. So showing emotions was like, it was an easy thing for me. Like she always understood that. And, you know, other guys grow up with their dads, per se, and raised mainly by their dads and saying, like, no, men don't cry or, like, men hold everything in. And that just causes, like, this very toxic masculinity to happen. No, it's really, we're in a really, we're in a big crisis. There's a real problem with it. It's, um, you know, I can see it with COVID just driving around on the highways. The guys are out there on the road, you know, speeding and, you know, taking their rage out on the road. It's actually terrifying. Yeah, it's a terrifying time um, because of toxic masculinity. Because you know, I think I see a lot of women who are mad, but you know, they give you the finger. But men like try to run you off the road. They're impatient. They're angry. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's COVID and it's Trump drumming up hate. Um, oh, so much so hate! There's oh really a movie that if Wes were here, he could sort of corral it all into a movie. You know, oh, that that would that's so amazing. I'm sure he could. He he probably had so many ideas running through his head if well, he were many, here I know. today. You know, it's really it's a, although you know he was definitely a man and you know didn't like men to be cris- criticized. You know, that's what women have to yeah. be so careful because men. I I don't know why men don't say, hey, you know what, you know, I know so many guys are jerks, and I don't blame you for being mad at men. I'm going to try to be a nice guy, but they're too. They're they can't even say that because they're too um, protective of you know being criticized. But I would just go yeah. for guys going, look, we got to, guys, we got to get together. We got to stop this crazy, you know, killing three women a day in domestic, you know, relationships or with three women are murdered a day. You know, we have to, we have to stop the cycle, but I don't think anyone will because maybe they're a little bit guilty of something. So they mm-hmm. just feel criticized. So maybe 
society isn't asking them in the right way. But, you know, in a world, like I said, where three women are murdered a day by a domestic partner, you know, it's, it's, we're in a bad way. We, we really are, you know, it's really, you know, uh, I, I see, you know, you share all that and I try to share most of that too, you know, with like domestic abuse is still such a horrifying thing. I think seven women a day are killed and, in Mexico. Yeah, Mexico is really, really bad. bad. I'm telling you, France is bad. And, you know, all countries are bad. It's just something that kind of people don't talk about and people get away, you know, guys get away with it. And that when documentary really on show. Netflix now, I think it's called An American Murder. Yeah. Oh, my God. That was oh. so terrifying. You know, it's... Uh, Bella's actually from Colorado. Oh. Yeah. That was pretty scary. Yeah, just hearing about it, like, on the news, like, every single day. It was just terrifying, like, knowing that it was just nearby, like, maybe, like, 20 minutes away. Oh, my God. Yeah, that guy was is such a monster. It's, you know, people would ask Wes, oh, you know, you know, where do you get your ideas? Say, what do you mean? I read the paper, you know? <laughs> yeah, and that, you know, it, when I, we were watching Scream, we are actually talking about how a lot of the issues that Scream um, plays on are things that are still going on in this generation. Totally. And, you know, the, and I was thinking when about like, we, we were going to shoot, the reason why there was such a problem with the shooting in the high school is because of the murder in Petaluma of this young girl who was, who was kidnapped and murdered by a guy. Her name was Polly Class. And, you know, it really, if you really think about it, sort of violence against women really moved us over to Sonoma because they were so horrified. Yeah. The community was so traumatized by this murder of this young girl that that was the reason why we uh, did move, which, you know, you kind of can't blame them, right? Yeah, you can. But, you know, at the same time, I feel like it brings... Like, the Scream movies, like, really brought awareness to a lot of the, those troubles. Because at the end of the day, um, you know, you can have, like, your immortal um, killers like Freddy and Jason all that. But at the same time, like, what made, what still makes Scream so terrifying is that it's everyday people that you would never assume that are the killers. Yes. Yep. And that's what, you know, even watching them today, I'm like, you know, people. There's people still like this out there, and it's it's that li- it's that line I feel that terrifies me the most. The one that Billy says at the end, where it's like, uh, horror uh, horror movies don't make serial killers. Uh, horror movies make serial killers more yeah. creative. And I'm just like, this line was like ahead of its time. Oh, I know that's Kevin Williamson for you. Oh, I know Kevin Williams. Like his script was so on the mark. So on the mark. I mean, that's what I mean where we got so lucky that we had the script. We had Wes, we had Courtney, we had Nev, we had Drew. You know, it just all was fantastic. And the mask, the mask. We should talk about that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So do you sure, want to I'll tell you the whole story? So we were making the movie. And when you read the script, you just see a masked figure, right? And so, yeah. of course, then you get you take the job and you've got to decipher it. So, oh no, mass figure, but what about the body? And what about the hands? And what about the shoes? So we came up with a cape kind of idea, whatever you call it, the shroud. And, um, yeah, the shroud. So then we could, KNB, our special effects house, was trying to come up with a mask and they just weren't hitting it. And um, 
Yeah, I saw some of the like concept designs. They're like really yeah, like overboard. So what yeah. happened is, I think you probably heard the story, but I'll tell it again. Is we were on a location scout at a house in Santa Rosa, and I went upstairs and I found this mask sitting in an old bedroom, and it was the ghost mask with a white shroud, <clears throat> and I brought it downstairs and I said, oh, Wes, look, oh my God, look at this mask. Oh my God. He said, nah, I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to do our own mask. I don't like that mask. So. No way. And so we went back to work and had a couple tests with the mask that KMB were coming up with and nothing worked. So finally I said, call that lady from that house and try to get that mask. Let's take another look. And so our production designer went over and got the mask and Wes, he said, all right, but I think we need to change the chin and I don't like the eyes. So we made a slightly different mask and we got the rights, but we altered it. Yeah. And we could see the first couple of days that it just wasn't as effective. So we went back to the original mask. Then Bob hated masks. Oh my god! So then we almost shut down, and he said, "Shoot the scene tomorrow with five different masks. I don't care what mask you use, but don't use that mask. I hate it." <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> and lo and behold, you're right all along. <laughs> let let it be known to everyone out there who loves Ghostface. It's thanks to Marianne herself that that face became That's so right. iconic. Like I remember, I believe it was like, even in two thousand five, two thousand six. Like, in middle, I was in middle school at the time, and people were still wearing Ghostface. And even today, you know, I see so much fan art, pins, everything still Ghostface. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know, I know. It's it's so it's an obsession. It is, and I, I really don't like what they did with the TV show. Oh, I hated that so much. I, I did not like that mask. I'm like, no. Like, it felt like they were trying too hard to change it up. Like, no, the Ghostface mask worked because, you know, it was so simple. Yeah, it simple. was more contractual. They didn't do it because they, you know, wanted to. Yeah. Uh, but still, like, iconic. Like, you saw you saw it perfectly. Like, that was, like, your call. It wasn't for you, you know. I don't, I cannot picture that movie work with any other face. No, not at all. Um, see, we were actually gonna. We had some fan questions because uh, I asked a few people if they had any ideas. Bella, do you remember one of the fan questions people wanted to ask? Let me see. I know one of the questions was how hard was it for them to convince the studio to kill off Drew Barrymore in the beginning? Well, it was always in the script, so it wasn't hard at all. Oh, so Drew Barrymore was planned to be killed off from the beginning? Okay. That's interesting. Okay. All right, so how was it working on the remakes to the Hills Have Eyes oh, franchise? Was a blast. We had such, well, the first one was fun. The second one, not so fun. Um, but I love working with Alex Aja. He's brilliant. Oh yeah. 
Oh my god. I you know it's really funny that the Hells Have Eyes ended up getting a remake. Like I felt like it was so soon. Because the original one was released back in nineteen what was it? What's his original Hells Have Eyes was nineteen eighty? No, I'm not I don't know, because it was before my time. And then you so it's funny that you ended up working on the remake. Was was from something that oh, no. Wes well, made. Well, Wes produced it as well. You know, he was on board with us. Yeah, yeah, he produced oh, he it was? too. He um, he didn't like producing other directors, so it was always so hard because mm-hmm. he was the director. You know, so it was a challenge. Yeah. but we did get Alex, uh, Aja, and Gregory Levesseur to direct. Um, and it, they were brilliant. But Wes never liked them. He never liked. He actually didn't like the movie. Did not you didn't like the, like movie. the movie? Oh so my god. Imagine my That's job funny. as a producer. I've got to get this movie done with these other guys. But Wes just didn't support it at all. And it was so hard because, you know, he was an auteur and it was his vision. Even though the concept was fun of making money on someone else's movie, he couldn't really see himself like that. Yeah, because it was like, technically it was his original thought, correct? I can only imagine how... That was. Uh, so one one other thing I want to kick out you you sponsor a film, of yes, festival, correct? Uh, so how how well, that I come love to French be? Films. I'm a French. I'm a Francophile. So I went. I kept going to the festivals, and then one day the head of the festival came over for dinner, and he said, "Oh, your house is so beautiful. Can we have parties in your backyard?" So every year I sponsor one of the mm-hmm. parties with over a hundred people. And you know, I'm just a supporter of French cinema. You know what French cinema. I think one of the things I enjoy from French cinema is they're actually they're hard too because it, it's so Oh, did you see high bloody. tension that Alex Aja did? Love yeah, that I did movie. actually. That's how we oh fell in love God. with Alex. We saw, well, believe it or not, I I saw the movie. And I called Wes and his uh-huh. the other guy in the movie, the producer Peter Locke, and I said, "You guys, you got to see this movie, and this is the perfect guy." And then they thought it was too violent because you don't understand. Really? Wes didn't see himself. As, oh yeah, yeah, he didn't. He, he didn't wasn't like he he actually guy. didn't even see himself as someone who made violent scenes. So you'd say, "But Wes, this isn't. It's, yes, it's violent, but you know, you make violent movies, you know, but." It, had to he goes oh that was just awful i just blah, blah, blah. it was just so violent and i had to again you know massage it because i knew alex was a superstar you know so that was hard yeah very hard oh my god Marianne, you really you really were there like slowly <laughs> pushing him like come on yeah <laughs> come oh, that on. Was, that's the job that's that's amazing though it's like Oh, I can see like, you know, like I said, you know, I think Wes was an amazing storyteller. Don't get me wrong. His legacy will go on for many generations. But at the same time, like, that's also why I want to have you come on because, you know, you were there. You're the one who, you know, pushed him a lot of times to be like, come on, Wes, like, you can do this. Well, yeah, and don't, I, I kind of like and, made him more mainstream, you know, because we were partners and he was always a shy kind of, you know, guy who would go into meetings all alone and so i think when the two of us in a room just you feel more comfortable as you guys are partners you know that 
when you're with a partner, you feel more confident. Yeah. You aren't alone in the room. So it just really, we had an incredible friendship and partnership. And that's great. Like, you know, you really helped them push. Like, you're probably one of the main reasons. Like, he became so part of the mainstream because before that, he wanted to work yeah, on Yeah, I like to films. think that. And people do say that to me. Heather Langenkamp, who's one of my biggest fans, who starred as Nancy, she will just say it. She said it's the woman behind, mm-hmm. you know, the woman behind. Yeah, it is. Like, it goes back to that old thing. Like, behind every strong, powerful man, there's a woman who's mm-hmm. pushing him. And, you know, I think I, I think producers don't get a lot of the credit they deserve. No, they don't. And then after when we we didn't work together on one movie called My Soul to Take. And I think not to, you know, mm-hmm. brag, but I think it shows. Yeah, uh, I think I remember. Actually, the only reason I remember is because it's yeah, so I think forgettable. It shows that um, I think he missed me. But I was off I was in like- Cape town making last house on the left so i didn't work on it um but you know i think uh yeah i don't think that was his favorite year it wasn't and my god like your work on the last the last house on left is another great film that one hit completely different so you know it's funny that what i'm getting so far is that you know both you and wes weren't Right. horror people but somehow you guys made like the best well, yeah, and horror as, films. And for me the, the shows I watch are all um, thrillers you know like the TV shows I like to watch I would rather see a thriller than a comedy I don't necessarily like horror like I don't love most just generic horror movies but given a great story that's my favorite form of entertainment yeah, uh, have you seen the show called I Evil on that. Netflix? That's good. Yeah, I just finished it just yesterday. It's oh, I, I'll continue. Brilliant. I just finished this incredible. It's still going on. It's called um, it's not really. It's more thriller, but it's called uh, Tehran. Apple. It's about a Tehran? Israeli female undercover spy in Iran. So good, Ooh. but yeah, I can't wait to see. I started Evil, but then I had to finish Tehran. And I just not like people say, Oh, watch this comedy. I'm like, nah, no, I just want a thriller. <laughs> like, a I don't thriller. like I don't like science fiction y stuff, but I love just love thrillers. Yeah. No, but like I think evil evil really catches really? that very so like, camp camp. I'm just at the beginning where they're interviewing the kid and the guy is a uh demon, what is he? Um Yeah. Oh George. No, yeah, like the way they go about and then the story, how slowly progresses just has you at the edge of your seat, especially towards like the end where it leaves off the first season. You'll be like, I I really am addicted to I get addicted and I get so depressed when I'm not in the middle of a good binge. No, same. I'm the same way. You know, that's why, you know, I started doing this podcast and like at first I wanted to do it about me and Bella wanted to do about anime, but then we realized there's like, so we're inspired by so many different things other than anime, you know, like movies, TV shows, or just, you know, day-to-day life things that we want to talk about. And especially, well, but at the end of the day, most things that me and her are inspired by is like pop culture, like what's going on, like TV shows. I like to keep up with the industry. Like what's, what's new that's coming out, what's gained, like renewed, what's 
being canceled and what stories there is out there to tell. I know. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, um, it's, it's, you know, it's my biggest addiction, which is why I wanted to be a film producer. <laughs> no, it's, and that's why I want to like try to step into entry. Like hopefully this podcast goes to different places. Uh, another person that I actually connected working at Sam's uh, is the producer to baby daddy, Scott. Oh, wow. and yeah. Uh, and he's also working on a family family reunion on Netflix right now. Great. So you know, I I love hearing the stories that you know you producers. If anything, I love to talk to a lot of producers because I feel like you know everybody always talks to the actors or everybody always talks to the directors. Like I want to hear like the producer side. Oh of yeah, because we were there. We know. Yeah, you're there, you know, you're handling a lot of things. You know, the producers usually handle, like, the biggest troubles. Um, Like you said yourself, you know, as a producer, you're always facing, like, the roughest things. Or you're trying to, like, work with your director to make sure, you know, they don't, like, lose themselves. Oh, my God, it's exhausting. Then they hate you if they don't. They go over, then they hate you because you're not giving them more days and time. And they say, you're the producer, produce more money. You're like, yeah, but you agree to this. You signed a contract. Uh, it's really like, yeah. but I always say, if you want to, if you look at how a mother runs Christmas, it's a little sexy to say, but the mom, yeah. you know, gets all the presents, decorates the house, buys all the presents for the relatives, fills the stockings, get the kids cute, get the food on the table. You know, that's what you do as a producer. You have to intuitively think, what does every kid want? What will make them happy when they wake up in the morning? You know? Do I have the right clothes? We go to grandma's house. They're not going to criticize what the kids are wearing. Do I have the 10 course dinner that everyone's going to say, where's the sweet potato? You know, it's, that's just how it all is, but it's all emotion based, you know? You know, I, you know, I think that that really plays into like one of the key factors of why, you know, I probably respected your work so much because, you know, it is, it is like old school to say, but at the same time, it's kind of true. Moms are always like looking out yeah. for everything. When there's trouble, they're the first ones to handle it. And I'm sure as a producer, that's probably how it was for you. The second, you know, something went wrong, you're right there. Yeah, it's just emotional. You have to anticipate. You have to think. You know, you have to figure out what will make that person work well. You know, you want the best work out of everyone. So you can't clobber them over the head and say, just work well. You know, you have to think, how do I approach every single person in the right way to get the best work out of them? You know, I, and it's really funny. That's actually how uh, me and Bella work because a lot, you know, a lot of times I'm freaking out about how I want to go about the day and Bella's right there to, you know, stern back direction to let me know uh -huh. it's going to be okay. Um, so, you know, even with this, you know, I was so nervous to have you on and like I was panicking. We, we faced troubles like, um, a few days before, um, I thought I had oh lost my, my laptop. Yeah, and I was like freaking out. It was like it was like two days, and I was like, "What am I gonna do?" You know, she already said yes, and she was like, "It's gonna be okay. We're gonna find Where'd it. Um, we're gonna get." Uh, my mom had accidentally misplaced it in a Toru's um, <laughs> carriage, actually. What? In uh, Toru's her oh her my little God. stroller. Yeah, I was like freaking. I was looking all over the house, and then, like after like the day was almost up, she comes to me like, "Oh, I think I put put it in uh, Toru's 
carriage or um, stroller. I'm like, <laughs> no way, really. And it was like right, and it was like right in the house. So I I move it and I unfold it because we fold it up to you know store it. And oh it was my in God. there. I hate that, that happened to me. That's terrible. Oh, but, but yeah, that's the thing. It's, it's I, you know, you can't underestimate a good partnership. You know, and that's why it's good to team up with someone in life, you know, work-wise, romantically-wise. Partnership, it, again, you're not alone in a room. In the film business, certainly those rooms are really scary, you know. And you have a comfort level. Oh, I'm sure. I can only imagine. Level. And that's why yeah. I think our partnership worked, because we had a comfort level with each other for, what, 20 years. 20, 20 years. That's that's yeah. a long time. Entertainment yeah, industry, even longer. Like I worked with him, probably twenty. Probably started when I was. Probably we worked together for like twenty five years. Oh my god! So actually, there's another one last question I want to ask you, and I think this one's for Bella though, like because she her biggest she's the biggest Matthew uh. Leonard fan. Uh, Bella, do you want to ask? So, how was it working with uh, Matthew Leonard? Because I know at the time um, he he was just a darling, funny, just the best guy. Um, Funny, sweet, thrilled to be there. We had a blast with Matthew. I I think his performance is so funny throughout the film. Like he's so over the top, but yeah, no, it makes it work. Uh, all right, so all right, it's been the hour mark. I think this is perfect way to end it. Uh, thank you, Pleasure. thank you so much I for coming on, Marianne. Talking with you guys. It was a pleasure having you on. Like I love hearing stories, and you know, so many, I, just talking to you has like already shown me so much. Like what it takes to work in the industry. I know. And how the tough film it is. Is, is. It's not for sissies. <laughs> nah, it takes yeah, not probably a lot of work. But, you know, it didn't even feel like work to me. So. It's just that you, again, the biggest thing is a producer, you can't freak out in light of a problem, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And well, hopefully I get that pilot done soon and maybe I pitch it. I would okay, love to I have you to produce that. You, you're going to love it. Uh, the reason I've been so lacking on it is just because, you know, I guess I've been having other people read it and some of them say like certain lines aren't good. And like, I know like, Writing is a like step by step process you learn every day. I got it. You know, you got to perfect it. That's your, you know, the ace in the hole. You want to show people you're only going to read it once. Exactly. All right. So, Marianne, thank you for coming on. I'll hopefully see Uh, you soon. Yeah.